The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace, you can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth. Hello. Actually, I'm not Gwendolyn. Uh, but welcome to the Visual Workplace, the weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. I'm Martin Hinckley, host of the show this week and next. Your regular host, Gwendolyn Gosworth, is in England presenting on uh, Visual Leadership, her new book that is coming out this winter. And she asked me to pinch hit for her since Gwendolyn and I have been working closely over the past six months on a mistake-proofing project for the biomedical industry. I'm sure she has told you about it. It's been very exciting for both of us because my specialized field is quality systems with pokayoka or mistake-proofing as the center. And because she worked with Shigeo Shingo back in the 1980s on the same thing and, and pokayoka systems are a part of her visual workplace continuum, she calls them visual guarantees. It's been very wor- interesting working together. In fact, it's been riveting. And that is what uh, Gwendolyn has asked me to talk about with you today. And that is mistake-proofing, or as the title of today's show indicates, the exceptional challenge of mistakes, also known as why statistical process control fails. We both think you will find that what I have to share is very useful. That is our hope. And I will be here next week as well. well. This is a call-in show, so so you can call in any time with your comments and questions. The number for that is 866-472-472. 5790. Let me repeat that. The number is 866-472-5790. So let's get started uh, talking about statistical process control and mistake proofing. And uh, let's begin by kind of reviewing the history of a uh, brief history of the of quality control. Um, perhaps the single most important Innovation in quality in the history of mankind occurred uh, just a little over a hundred years ago, and it was about the year was about uh, a little, just a little before 1906, and that was at the um, Ford Motor Production Plant. The Ford Motor Production Plant was the first facility in the world that used standardized measurement methods and standard measurement tools. Now that sounds like such a simple thing, and we take it. So, uh, for granted, but before this period of time, before we had standard measurement methods and standard measurement tools, every uh, process product was measured differently, and it was actually the discovery of uh, or the implementation of those standard measurement methods that led to the profound quality improvement programs and processes that we that we have today. 
The, the biggest challenge, however, is that statistical process control really can't predict defects. And uh, we're going to be talking about that and some of the issues behind that. Um, it was about uh, a little less than 20 years later that Schuhart, working at uh, Bell Labs, uh, uh, identified the opportunity con to control mistakes through statistical process control. Interestingly, uh, Genichi Taguchi was a member of the team. In fact, he was the mathematician working with Schuhart that developed the statistical process control methods. And uh, together, this team uh, identified ways of controlling variation in, in ways that would limit... Uh, limit the, var the variation and, and the defects. Now, if we look around every single kind of process, no matter what it is, we see variation. If we're thinking about machining, there's vibration that occurs. Uh, we can see tool wear. We see tr variation in furnace temperature distributions. We see d differences in plating thicknesses or vapor dep deposition. And that can vary in duration, temperature, or evaporation rates. I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you're working with an outstanding kicker on a football team in the United States, and there are there's a goalpost in front of them, and, he, and the the kicker is going to kick a ball over the goalpost, and he's going to do it a thousand times. And the horizontal bar on the goalpost is taped off and marked in every two two feet, and so every time the ball goes over the goalpost you mark how many times uh, the ball falls in each two-foot increment. And so if you made a chart of that and started marking, put a vertical mark on the paper that went up for every time it went in that increment, pretty soon you would find a stack chart or a histogram that would show the distribution of where that ball is located as it's kicked through the goalpost. Those curves, typically, those, those histograms, rather, typically if I plot the frequency as the height of the bar, and then the bin being the width of that two-foot increment that I'm kicking the, the ball through. Uh, if I plotted the, that histogram, we would find typically a peak of more frequent events near the center of the goalposts, and uh, less frequent events as we get further and further away from the middle of that, of that sample. So... This kind of pattern of, of organizing data is at the root of all statistical methods. Well, what we do with that histogram is we typically try to then fit a data, a set of, a, a mathematical model to that pattern of data. And that is the whole purpose behind uh, statistics is to find the right kinds of models to fit the data. The most commonly accepted model for distributions is uh, what is called the normal distribution. And it's the, what, we, what we refer to as the bell-shaped curve. Uh, in almost every use of an analytical tool, some of the common measures of the uh, process is the mean or the average value of the observations. So if we were kicking balls over the goalpost and it had a perfectly normal norm, 
normally distributed function, and it was centered between the two goalposts, uh, the mean would be uh, halfway between the two goalposts. And then the second thing that we look at is the dispersion, or uh, the the standard deviation, or variance of a population, standard deviation of a function. And uh, that measures how wide that's, uh, that data is spread out in that pattern. If, for example, when we're kicking a football, all the pole, all the balls that cross between the bars uh, never come close to the uh, to the end to end post, we would say the dispersion is narrow con compared to those boundaries. And if a third of them are falling outside of the upright post, then we'd say the dispersion is large. So um, the whole the whole purpose of statistics is then to try to use the shape of the math mod mathematical model that fits the curve to try to predict how frequently an event will fall outside of the control limits. Again, returning to our goalpost uh, example, we could use the dispersion or distribution of the location of the ball where they're kicked to try to predict how frequently a ball will fall outside of the control limits, or the, in this case, the left post and the right post. That would be our, upper, our lower control limit on the left and the upper control limit on the right. Now, if, I, if my kicker becomes better and the spread in the data decreases, he gets more and more balls between the goalposts. On the other hand, if uh, because of an injury or some other issue, if the dispersion gets larger, then there's fewer and fewer balls that make it through the, through the critical controls in, the, in this process. So the real issue that we come up against is how well do traditional statistical methods or even the Six Sigma methods predict the probability that a ball will fall outside of the control limits given that we've developed a model that describes the dispersion of data that we have. Now one of the most interesting parts of that question uh, comes from a statement that Duran made. He said the Pareto principle would lead us to believe that most distributions of quality characteristics would not quite be normal. Both Schuharts and the author's experience confirm this. Now, this is a very interesting statement. It says that basically in almost every process that they've examined, most distributions are close to being normally distributed, but they're not quite normally distributed. And the reason that they ascribe this uh, to is the Pareto principle. Now, most of you may be familiar with Pareto charts. A Pareto chart uh, sorts the quality problems that we have from the most frequent to the least frequent, and we plot that in a in a in a plot where the these vertical bars decrease rapidly, and uh, it follows typically the 80-20 rule where 80% of the problems are caused by, 80% uh, of the challenges in any process are caused by 20% of the events. And this is where the Pareto principle uh, came from. And uh, Duran as ascribed the Pareto principle to this, uh, to this type of plot. 
What is interesting, however, about the Pareto chart is Pareto, um, the, the chart, this type of chart was not originally called a Pareto chart. This chart was invented by a gentleman by the name of Lorenz, and it was called a Lorenz chart. And this Lorenz chart was dis developed to describe distributions that do not follow, um, uh, to, to describe distributions that follow Pareto's law. So that's where the term Pareto gets associated with the Pareto chart. The one thing that is interesting about Pareto's law, however, is that it violates, uh, it can violate the strong law of large numbers as well as the central limit theorem. And so when these conditions apply, it means that extrapolation to extreme limits will frequently fail. So if distributions are not normally distributed, what do they look like? Well, a lot of times they can be bimodal. There can be two different peaks. Or other kinds of common problems is they are skewed. Now let's think of a, a person that is kicking uh, footballs. He may have a tendency to kick more frequently to the left than to the right. And so this distribution is skewed. He may adjust his stance or the way he approaches the balls to try to bring that to the center. But even if he gets uh, the average centered on the post, his kicks may still have a tendency to go more to the right or to the left. So that would be a type of distribution that is skewed. So how did they deal with the fact that most distributions in a process are not normally distributed? Well, the answer to that is quite interesting. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the issue with that is that um, they developed a technique of averaging observations. So they take three or four observations and average them. And then uh, the second thing that they do is they discard outliers. We discard events that are more than four standard deviations away from the mean. And that is kind of a typical type of approach that we have uh, in, in addressing uh, these things. And when we do this, the resulting distribution when we plot it looks normally distributed. And that's true of most functions. If, if we average and discard outliers, the distributions look normally distributed. One of the challenges, however, because of that, is that we're not predicting accurately the frequency of events that fall in the tail. Uh, this process lowers the, makes the distribution look narrower than it really is, and it also obscures uh, the, the outliers that are occurring in the tail, and it makes it look like distributions are normally distributed when they're really not quite that good. Um, so where we use this in statistics is we go out on a factory floor, production line, whatever the process is, and then we measure the uh, what is called X-bar or the mean of the uh, of these observations, and we also measure the range, which is kind of a rough approximation to how much dispersion, uh, not nearly as good as a standard deviation. 
but we use a plot of this to predict uh, when we're above or below a control limit how we're going to adjust the process to get it back into control. So all of our ability to prevent mistakes is based on our accuracy of predicting when we need to make adjustments in the process. And um, these adjustments, uh, the, if they're made effectively, uh, are helpful in preventing uh, errors from occurring in production. So with that, we're going to take about a one-minute break, and we'll come back in one minute. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Thank you. Um, let's see. One of the things that we have to understand, then, about statistics is that the method of averaging observations obscures the fact that, that most data does not tend to be uh, perfectly symmetric. It tends to be skewed. And so the averaging obscures that. Uh, when we discard outliers, it turns out, in theory, we predict that we should discard about one outlier or unusual event about once in every 10,000 observations every thousand observation, which means that we're throwing away data that is extreme events much more frequently. Sampled sizes are generally too small to make extrapolations to extreme limits. And uh, it turns out when eight out of ten uh, quality problems. There are also shifts and drifts in the mean as uh, is, are included in part of the Six Sigma process. But one of the things that we set out to do when I was a student at uh, Stanford University working with Profel Professor Phil Barkin 
is we tried to determine if we could predict defect rates from an extrapolation of process control uh, predictions. And we gathered data from Motorola, General Motors, Ford Motor Corporation, Sandia National Laboratories, and a number of major corporations. We gathered data over long periods of time, large data sets. Could not predict accurately system-level defect rates from process control capabilities. Uh, more importantly, we looked in the literature to see if anyone has ever demonstrated the ability to predict system-level defect rates based on process capability. Uh, single case in the literature when, where anyone has been able to do this. Uh, the data from uh, a couple years ago, Lockheed Martin, uh, we collected their data for uh, an entire year. Every production problem that was identified, every uh, quality problem identified in production. And then uh, we tried to see what we could find from that data about predicting events. It turns out that something like 35% of the defects occurred in what is called uh, out-of-area workmanship problems. They were problems that were occurring outside of process control during transportation or handling or shipping or storage. And so uh, because a large fraction of processes are never in, statistical quality control, uh, the very best statistical methods that we can use. They, they just don't handle uh, all of the problems and processes that can come up in a, in, a, in a process. So we quality control. Why do we emphasize the order of discovery, that was the first source of quality problems that was identified. And the second part of the question is, why would variation be less of a concern today than when it was first discovered? The control, the uh, power, the uh, sensors have all been improving dramatically over time. They get better. And, and so... While variation was the dominant quality problem when it was first discovered, it has become a smaller and smaller fraction of the total quality problems that occur in any process. And one of the things that we need to understand, first of all, is that mistakes are extremely rare and random events. And because of that, uh, we cannot predict the impact of mistakes based on traditional analogy of the person that's kicking the football uh, between the uprights, we could develop a very accurate characterization, characterization of the football player uh, standing and kicking from the 30-yard line towards the, uh, the goal. However, and the kicker kicks, he's kicking from a different position. Um, other kinds of problems, the, the wind may cause variation. Uh, uh, this doesn't fit the, the case of a distribution. It doesn't fit the model of a distribution. It doesn't fit uh, the probabilistic kind of things that we would predict by analyzing all of the variation that we get on most of the plays that occur. 
they may get distracted by uh, something a fan's doing on the sideline or whatever the case may be, uh, temporary lapse in understanding uh, can cause uh, an outcome that is, doesn't fit the model of the distribution in any way. And, and mistakes, it turns out, each type of mistake can have wide ranges in probabilities of uh, differences in the probability of an error. Well, the difficulty with mistakes is they result typically in outcomes that are way, way, way outside of what we would predict in terms of a distribution. They're not even close to the pattern of the, of the goalposts. Now, if I think of a part or process, unlike the goalpost range, that's declared a, uh, a non-score for that kind of problem. But in most products, if we have a product that is just slightly outside the control limits, it is non-conforming. But these, they're not desirable, but they rarely result in serious failures in the product. On the other hand, most mistakes are generally so serious, they almost always cause serious quality problems in the product. If I think of a, a simple kind of part uh, to refuel your vehicle, uh, when you go to remove the gas cap, they now have a cord, so you can't loosen it. On Fords, they don't even have a gas cap anymore. Uh, when I was young, fly it off and you'd lose it. And it happened so often that if I lost a gas cap, I found I could drive around a service station and I could typically find the gas cap. Purchase the gasoline, I must specify the kind of fuel. Uh, then when I uh, have done those things, if I don't lift the handle off the pump, I can't pump. The handle, it has a switch that shuts it off if the tank is too full. And it has a guard that prevents me if I drop the, ha the uh, nozzle. It prevents it from accidentally dispensing gas. Uh, and then when I'm finished, I have to remove the nozzle and put it back on the put it back on the pump. But there are some interesting pictures of people driving away from the pump without removing the nozzle from their car. In this simple operation, we still have mistakes that occur in that process. Each one of those mistakes independently are extremely rare, but collectively uh, all of these types of mistakes typically result in defects in the range of 1,000 to 5,000 parts per million. And that is many, many times higher than we predict uh, that we would be able to get with statistical process control. So out of observations like this, on a major aerospace project, every time we had a problem in the field, we would send somebody out with the camera, and instead of just giving a report, we'd take a picture of it. And what we got back was stunning. Issues in the field were traceable to a mistake. We had missing parts. We had extra nuts that had fallen in the assembly. In one case, a plastic part had been installed and removed the plastic parts. We have wrong washers. Uh, we have damaged parts. We have uh, tubes that are bent incorrectly, misrouted. Um, and, well, it turned out mistakes with statistics. 
There is no way that you can predict with statistical methods when a mistake is going to occur. There is no way that you can predict when a mistake occurs how serious the consequence of that mistake will be. And because of that, this leads to serious problems in terms of controlling them through the traditional statistical quality control methods. And with that, we will take a one-minute break. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Thank you for your patience. On my understanding is we have had a little bit of a connection problem. Um, I do apologize for that. Don't quite know where the issue is occurring, but um, uh, just as a quick review, mistakes are random, rare events. We cannot predict them or control them statistically. There's no possible way to predict when a mistake is going to happen because of mistakes. And the difficulty is that Mistakes result in outcomes that are extremely severe compared to everything that happens uh, in terms of variation. The result is that most defects, the problems that are the, are the challenge for customers, the large fraction of almost all defects originate from, from mistakes and not from variation. And uh, simple mistakes can result in truly catastrophic outcomes. In the startup of the Saturn Motor Corporation, a fluid was mislabeled. This mislabeled fluid, when it was put into the cars, uh, would eat some of the seals, and it caused the cars to become unreliable. Well, after production was well underway, a few owners started to come back and report problems with their vehicles, and when they investigated the problem and found this fluid in the cars, the difficulty is they had no idea which cars had the 
had the problems with the fluid and which cars did not. The result was that the Saturn Motor Corporation's reputation was on the line. They had been advertising the fact that they were the uh, these high-quality vehicles, and now these vehicles may become highly unreliable. And so to maintain their brand, brand name, they rebuilt the cars exactly as the customers had ordered. And then they, instead of asking them to come in like they would for most recalls, they would deliver the cars out to the customers, to their work, to Alaska, uh, all over the country, and it cost GM, it's estimated, $5 billion to handle a mislabeled fluid. Uh, the cost of mistakes can be even more staggering than this. During World War II in the Halifax Heavy Bomber, the crew would enter through a doorway hatch, and this hatch uh, was such that they would throw their parachute through the door and then put the parachute on after they got in the airplane. Well, with the parachute on, if the plane was hit with, with flak or, or was shot down, the operators couldn't get back through the door of the airplane with the parachute on, so they were trapped in the airplane. turns out that the crew members in the tail section of the airplane, it would take them 19 seconds to travel from the end of the airplane to a place that they could bail out of the aircraft. During World War II, 14,000 men lost their lives in this aircraft, and probably in the neighborhood of at least 10% of those deaths could be attributed to the fact that the hatch door was made so small they couldn't bail out with a parachute on. Now, the British discovered this before uh, before the end of the war, but the press of war was so urgent that the British did not do anything to fix fix the hatch on this door. Um, You can look around every day in the paper. A large fraction of the articles that you can read in the paper are linked to mistakes that are occurring in the process. Um, A few years ago, there was a crash of an F-117 fighter, stealth fighter. In this airplane, the pilot took the aircraft up, and the uh, aircraft started vibrating severely, and he complained to the maintenance chief, and he said, you need to go through this airplane and see what's wrong with it and fix it. And the maintenance chief and the crew went through the aircraft, examined it carefully, and couldn't find a single problem with the aircraft. Um, The pilot took it up again. The vibrations became so severe that the pilot bailed out, and the plane crashed. The plane loss was $42 million. The investigation cost $50 million. But what they found is what is the most staggering part of this. Um, each plane, each wing of the airplane is held in place by four out of five, uh, four bolts, uh, five bolts on each wing. Well, when they, uh, when the investigation was completed, they had found that four out of the five bolts on one wing were missing. Only one out of the five bolts had been installed. And so the mistake of leaving the bolts out cost $42 million for the airplane, and the investigation was about $50 million. So the total loss was in the neighborhood of $100 million for the error of leaving these, uh, these bolts out. Simple mistakes can be incredibly costly. 
There's a young man in California who had cancer. When he went in the hospital to operate to remove the ribs, they removed the wrong ribs. And um, his parents described his life as a nightmare chain of medical visits where they went from one mistake to another. The young man died uh, when he was only 10 years old. Now, we might think that this is an uncommon occurrence. However, a national study uh, indicated uh, that it's estimated that 44,000 to 100,000 people die a year in hospitals due to medical errors in the United States alone. And so uh, simple errors can be incredibly costly. Now, for every person that dies in the hospital, there are probably 10 people who have an extended stay in the hospital because of a medical error, which puts that in the range of a million people per year. We may think, oh, well, that is not likely to happen to me. Um, when a pharma, when a doctor writes a prescription, 15% of those contain errors. After it's reviewed by a pharmacist, the error rate is down to 7%. And out of those 7%, one out of 100 is likely to be uh, potentially fatal. My nephew went in to a, to a pharmacy. He had a strep infection. And they gave him a prescription that was for the person with the same last name. And the, um, the investigator, uh, he would, got sicker and sicker and finally went back to the doctor. And the doctor looked at the prescription. It was for an adult instead of the young man, uh, but it had the same last name. The doctor told him if he took it one more day, he probably would have been dead. Uh, it was that serious. Uh, my my own father uh, was on a drug called Coumadin. Coumadin causes more hospitalizations than any other uh, medical medication. It is uh, what is called a blood thinner, but it is actually uh, more appropriately described as an anticoagulant. The difficulty is that it's difficult to balance and control, and uh, my. Dad had a problem with that. He went in the hospital, started bleeding out in his kidneys. He, they gave him uh, seven pints of blood, uh, and uh, over the next week, uh, his health declined dramatically. Uh, we need to be careful to understand that uh, mistakes happen. Uh, we don't punish mistakes. We recognize uh, that they do happen, but instead of dealing with the problems, the right thing is to take action to prevent those problems from recurring. And so um, the best method of dealing with these things are not the tools that are useful in controlling variation. And I want to emphasize we can't neglect the control of variation. We just have to recognize that the control of mistakes is critical in achieving outstanding world-class quality. And with that, uh, we'll take our last break here and come back in just a minute. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Thank you. Until I'd like to ask you a question. If uh, could the work that you do, could you make a mistake that could harm or injure others? And if you knew how to prevent defects caused by mistakes, and if it saved you time, it saved the company money, if it decreased your stress and improved productivity, would you commit to eliminating defects caused by mistakes in your work? I think the answer to that for all of us would probably be Yes, and what is interesting is we can get to levels of amazing quality control with mistake-proofing. Uh, Shigeo Shingo, the leader, uh, one of the leaders at Toyota that uh, was instrumental in developing some of these quality control methods, says this, mistake-proofing, I think, is the quickest road leading to the attainment of zero defects, end of quote. So how good can we really get with mistake-proofing? In 1992, Stark Manufacturing uh, had defect rates that were 800 parts per million, or in other words, there were 800 defects for every million uh, parts that they assembled or put together. They worked in a pick-and-pull kind of operations for the automotive industry. And they decided to implement mistake-proofing in the picking, placing, bending tubes, and forming parts that they were sending to the automotive industry. In 1993, they had a partial deployment, and they got down to about uh, 300 parts per million, cut their defect rates in in just roughly a third. In 1994, they were down to about 80 parts per million. And by 1995, they were down to five parts per million defect rates with mistake proving. Well, the next year, it turns out that the defect rates started to go back up. And... The company couldn't understand exactly what it was that was that was causing the problem, and uh, finally they got all the workers together and said, "Look, what's happening? Our you know our defect rates going back up again." And one of the workers finally fessed up and he said, "Well, we thought we had learned everything we needed to from the mistake-proofing devices, so we started to turn them off." 
Once the workers recognized that they could not do their work error-free without them, and they became committed to using them, the next year they delivered a million products with only a single defect. Currently, there are some companies that have claimed that they've completed 25 million operations without a single defect using mistake proofing. Um, so how important is it? Well, in traditional statistical quality control, this is before Six Sigma, the prediction is that you would have defect rates in the range of 2,700 defects per million parts or operations. Uh, in practice, the defect rates typically were in the range of 5,000 to 10,000 parts uh, part per million, or about two, uh, two to four times higher than you would predict with traditional statistics. Well, then along came Six Sigma. Uh, Michael Stewart and Harry Rigel developed the Six Sigma method, and after seven years of aggressively playing Six Sigma, the belief was that they would be able to get down to 3.4 parts per million. So uh, working with Motorola, we collected data on several of their production lines to examine uh, how their defect rates were, and and uh, they shared the data with us, and it turned out their defect rates were in the range of 1,000 parts per million with the best Six Sigma having applied this uh, aggressively for seven years. When they saw the data and saw that their defect rates were still that high, they committed to doing mistake proofing. And the first time they deployed it <coughs> on the first production line, they were able to get defect rates down to 100 parts per million. That's one-tenth the level of defects and a significant improvement over what they were getting with Six Sigma. So how important is mistake proofing in terms of quality control? A study done by the Xerox Corporation showed that um, the best companies in the United States uh, a decade ago were getting defects in the range of uh, 5,000 to 10,000, uh, 5,000 to 10,000 parts per million, and this included many Six Sigma companies. And these companies were spending, uh, based on Xerox's estimate and analysis of their production problems, six to 24 percent of their production costs went to scrap, rework, repair, warranty, and quality control. By comparison when they were comparing this data, and again, this was in their early 1990s, with world-class leaders such as Toyota at the time, they, they uh, estimated that their defect rates were below 30 parts per million, uh, dramatically lower than the very best companies that are using uh, statistical quality control. And so, um, so they had dramatically lower defect rates and... At the same time, these world of these, they estimated that Toyota is spending only three percent of their production budget on scrap rework, warranty, and quality control costs. So this is why there are two fundamentally different views of quality control in the world. The one is quality costs. The view of the most U.S. companies is we're paying lots of money to get to outstanding levels of quality control, and our quality control really isn't very good. In comparison, Japan views uh, their quality control as almost free. They get outstanding results for minimal investments. Now, 
that is uh, at the core of the difference between the view that quality is expensive or quality is free. Um, our view of Toyota and their quality methods are often incorrect. I spoke to one individual and he said, well, Toyota is a Six Sigma company. Well, interestingly, uh, Shigeo Shingo visited Stanford University and the professor who was my advisor asked him, he said, what do you think of Six Sigma after he'd spoken to a conference there? And he lifted himself up in the chair at the time he was 90 years old and he said, nonsense. Uh, remarkably, Toyota's goal is to completely eliminate statistical process control methods from the st- factory floor. And in our next session, we'll be talking about some of the methods for, that are essential for controlling mistakes, eliminating adjustments, and achieving outstanding world-class uh, quality in, at, at a fraction of the cost of traditional methods. Now, um, if there are any questions, I'd be happy to entertain those. I want to uh, thank you for participating in today's session. Uh, and we will be reviewing next time the role of visuality, the, re- the role of mistake-proofing, and the method of, for controlling variation without statistics based on converting adjustments to settings that is far more effective and, uh, and cost-effective than uh, any other method that has ever been developed. So uh, we look forward to having you next, next week, and thank you for your participation this week. And with that, uh, if there aren't any other questions, I will sign off. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.